Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to the latest edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. We are supported by listeners. Let me single out a couple. Paul L. Sesser, Durham, California. Larry Doors, an American in self-imposed exile in Costa Rica. I appreciate your support, and if you can help, just log on to PeterBCollins.com, and you can subscribe voluntarily for as little as $5 a month. Later in this podcast, we will meet Ziad Abbas, a Palestinian who is involved with the Middle East Children's Association. We're going to talk about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and the efforts to reject and repudiate the Goldstone Commission report. But first, Scott Horton returns to our program. He has penned a very powerful and important article that will be in the next hardcover edition, or the print edition, of Harper's Magazine. And if you'd like to see it sooner, log on to harpers.org. In addition to writing for Harper's, Scott Horton also teaches law at Columbia University. Scott, welcome back. Great to be with you, Peter. Well, I just want to thank you for the very detailed and uh, strong journalistic work that you did in putting together this piece about the so-called suicides that occurred in uh, June of 2006 at Guantanamo Bay. And you have very strong sourcing, very detailed information about the events of that night. And it raises uh, serious doubts about uh, what happened there, but more importantly, about the clear decision by President Obama not to pursue even the most egregious of uh, war crimes investigations and potential prosecutions related to the violations of our laws and the Geneva Convention Uh, at Guantanamo Bay. So thank you for this work, because it was a year ago that uh, you made a decision that in terms of accountability for the Bush-Cheney team, that you were going to focus on the torture issues. And uh, tell us a little bit about the critical source here of this article, Uh, a soldier who was on duty that night uh, in a guard tower and was able to observe some of the activities. Well, that's, that's right. I, I started looking at uh, this question, that is, these three deaths, going back about a year ago, uh, looking and trying to pull together official accounts and just thinking that the official accounts simply didn't add up. They didn't make any sense. Something was really wrong about this whole thing. Uh, and uh, about, uh, uh, about uh, six weeks ago, uh, I appeared on uh, Keith Olbermann's program, Nightline, and I went over a study that... Uh, Seton Hall University faculty and um, 
students had put together uh, where they had reviewed uh, all the official reports of what happened in connection with these deaths, uh, and they concluded that the official account was simply ludicrous. I mean, the only, the only thing you had to do to disprove it was just read it. Uh, they were describing these prisoners doing things that was almost physically impossible. Uh, I made that presentation. Uh, within two days, my phone was ringing, and it was, uh, it was uh, an Army uh, guardsman who was on duty that evening uh, who told me um, uh, that he had seen me discuss this uh, on the Oberman program and, uh, and that, indeed, there were quite a few facts uh, that might be interesting to me that he could provide. And shortly thereafter, I met with him, and then I met actually with a series of his uh, colleagues uh, from his same unit, which is the 629th Military Intelligence Unit, uh, and they all corroborated what he had to say. So actually, it's not just this one sergeant, Joe Hickman. It's, uh, it's pretty much his entire uh, group who were on duty that night. Uh, and they describe uh, that that night uh, three prisoners were taken from the cell block where uh, these uh, detainees uh, died, uh, supposedly, uh, and they were removed to a secret uh, black site that was known by the soldiers as Camp No. That was about uh, 8 o'clock in the evening, uh, and when they were returned from that camp, they were corpses. They weren't alive. And uh, let's talk a little bit about Camp No, this black site, because uh, there's still many questions about it. Clearly, it's uh, highly classified, and I'm sure the Pentagon is not pleased at the disclosures uh, that, that you're now responsible for. But people need to understand that Guantanamo is a, a piece of property there on the tip of the island of Cuba, and it's a fairly large uh, facility and piece of property. And so Camp No is located uh, down the road to the left, and then you take another road, and it, it seems to be buried. Uh, uh, you have a topographical-type uh, aerial view that is available to people who take a look at the article on the website, the satellite photo, and it shows that uh, the terrain would block a view of Camp No from the main facility at Camp Delta. That's exactly right. I mean, it's uh, as the crow flies, it's only a little bit more than a mile away from Camp Delta, yet it can't be seen because it's between these two plateaus, uh, nor, more significantly, could anyone hear anything coming out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, uh, in fact, I, I just uh, finished interviewing a, uh, a government contractor who had also, uh, while he was working at Guantanamo, had stumbled across this site and spent some time looking to it. And, and you know, he told me... Uh, after he discovered it, he was wondering why would there be something that looks like a brand-new detention facility built uh, j just a, a mile away from, uh, uh, from Camp Delta. I mean, why would they put it here? And then he saw the way it was set out, the location, everything else, and it struck him immediately that, well, this had to be the black site. I mean, it was where they were taking prisoners uh, to subject them to so-called enhanced interrogation techniques what the rest of the world calls torture, mm -hmm. uh, and they wanted a site where the screams, in fact, couldn't be heard, not by other prisoners uh, or those on the outside. So it was a more controlled environment. Uh, and, in fact, this stacks up with a tremendous amount of, uh, of, uh, of declassified and released internal government documents. I mean, th these documents indicate that the CIA had a substantial uh, interrogation operation with their own facility inside the Guantanamo Enclave, 
Uh, in fact, we have accounts uh, of FBI agents who visited it who are horrified at the things they see and lodge protests and so on. So there's actually a tremendous amount of documentation about the facility existing. But up until now, we have not known exactly where it was or what it looked like. And now, of course, we have photographs, we have detailed descriptions, uh, and we can tie it uh, explicitly and very clearly uh, to the death of these three prisoners on June 9, 2006. And uh, this gentleman, Hickman, was a sergeant. He was uh, serving a 12-hour shift that night that began at 6 p.m., ended at 6 a.m. the next day. And he was in a, a, a catbird's seat, uh, so to speak, because he was manning the tower above the main entrance there at, uh, at Camp America, Camp Delta. And uh, interestingly, you report that he was under strict instructions not to search the paddy wagon. This was uh, essentially the vehicle that was used to transport these three prisoners individually from their cells over to this murky black site uh, nicknamed Camp No. And so he was able to see the traffic, but he was not privy to uh, who was in each one of these trips uh, back and forth. And uh, so it, it makes for a very interesting security arrangement that here uh, one of the people who's charged with the perimeter guarding uh, is under instructions uh, to selectively ignore uh, certain activities. That, that, that's right. Let me, let me just back up and give you a little bit of information about Joe Hickman. I, he's actually one of the most impressive soldiers I've ever interviewed. Uh, he's someone who uh, volunteered for the military, uh, for the Marines right out of high school. Uh, he was inspired to uh, military service by Ronald Reagan, who he says was the greatest president we've ever had. And I think that tells you something about his politics. Yes, he is a conservative Republican and very proud of that. Uh, and uh, he's someone who really believes in the military and the military's mission. Uh, he uh, Evidently, he has a long track record of, uh, of stellar accomplishments in the military. He served in mil military intelligence almost his entire career. He was selected for President Reagan's uh, presidential honor guard. That's really something only for model soldiers. Uh, and uh, his service at Guantanamo was not a period of discontent. It was actually a professional high point for him. He received medals and commendations for his work there. He was cited for having single-handedly defused a major prison riot that occurred on May 18, 2006. He got a medal for that. Uh, he was selected as the NCO of the year. When he left Guantanamo, he was immediately promoted. So, uh, you know, he's not someone who has an axe to grind or a gripe. Uh, but as, as he told me, he witnessed things that evening, and so did other colleagues of his uh, that have haunted them ever since. Uh, and he said, you know, he couldn't get over the fact that at the end of that evening, three men were dead, uh, and the government was making statements about how they died, which he and his unit knew simply weren't true. Yeah. And we'll get to that in a moment, because the, the thing that always stuck with me, and as I read your article, it, it fleshed out so much of the detail, but the claim that uh, these inmates killed themselves in an act of asymmetrical warfare, which was uh, decried and deplored by those who launched what now appears to be a cover story, always uh, uh, didn't sit well with me. But let's talk a little bit about the process at the checkpoint here. And the drivers in a van carrying a prisoner would simply say they're delivering a pizza. 
that was the code phrase to tell the guards, hands off. That's right, and all the guards I interviewed confirmed to me that they were under strict instructions. You will not record the fact that this vehicle is going through or who's in it. It's as if it didn't happen. And this code word they all confirmed was, yes, pizza delivery. Wow. And so... The pizza, of course, meant a prisoner. Right, right. And so Hickman, was he suspicious that night, or was this uh, something that was relatively routine that he only put together after the deaths were reported? Well, it, it wasn't extremely routine, but, I mean, of course, they would observe during duty that uh, prisoners would be moved from time to time. They'd go for meetings with their lawyers and things like that. That was in the day. What was unusual was that this was going on at nighttime, uh, and as he told me, he never saw a case before where three prisoners... Uh, were being removed in rapid succession and taken to that facility. That had uh, his curiosity peaked. In fact, he was quite worried about it because of what he'd observed at that facility earlier. He and other guards tell me that they heard they had heard prisoners screaming uh, coming out of that facility. So there were suspicions, very strong suspicions, that horrible things were going on there. Take a moment now to tell us about these three individual prisoners, and were these high-value detainees whose uh, torture or uh, you know extreme interrogation was uh, uh, necessary, as Rumsfeld used to say, to produce intelligence? Well, let's note that uh, on the day they died, uh, Admiral Harris and the Pentagon went out of their way to attack them as uh, terrorists, Uh, In a a Pentagon press release, one was described as a frontline al-Qaeda soldier. Uh, Others were described as Taliban soldiers. Uh, We now know that at the time these statements were made, uh, military intelligence had concluded that none of these three prisoners had anything whatsoever to do with al-Qaeda or the Taliban, that their apprehension and detention with Guantanamo had been a mistake from the beginning, uh, and in fact the decision had been made to release them and let them go home. Uh, One was to return to Saudi Arabia in just 19 days. Uh, Another was the next person set to be returned right after that first person, Mr. Al-Utaibi. And the third person basically was cleared to go home, but the only problem was that he was a Yemeni and there was bad diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Yemen. So it's at the extreme end of the scale, actually. We had determined that these people were innocents who never should have been detained in Guantanamo, and we were ready to let them go home. Uh, So the statements that were made the day of their death were conscious lies. You also uh, provide more information in this article, Scott Horton, about a gentleman who Andy Worthington, the British journalist, brought to my attention. And uh, Andy's written the book called The Guantanamo Files. His website, which he constantly updates, is uh, really a great resource on these sordid issues. It's andyworthington.co.uk. And Shocker Amer, last name A-A-M-E-R, uh, is a, a guy who's widely to believed to be completely innocent. And he's one of the people who remains trapped at Guantanamo because of the remarkable uh, treatment in terms of torture that he received. And you point out that on uh, June 9 of 2006, he was uh, subjected to some very special attention. Well, that's right. I mean, let's point out first, there is something that links Shakur Amar and these three prisoners who died. 
Uh, and, and in fact, while I said these three prisoners were not Taliban, were not Al Qaeda, uh, the, we had no problem with them in that sense. That's not to say they were angels. All these prisoners and Shakar Amar have been involved in a hunger strike. So they've been making a lot of grief and trouble for the camp administration. Uh, and in fact, so that, that's the, that is the key fact that links them all together. And we know that the same night on which these three died, at this Camp No Detention facility, uh, Shakar Amar also received a special visit and got some special treatment. He describes being strapped into a restraining chair, being subjected to horrible torture for a period of an hour and a half. He says he thought he was going to die, and he describes in great detail all the torture techniques which were used, which are all designed to inflict intense pain, uh, but without leaving any physical sign of injury afterwards. Uh, and then he says at the end that uh, his windpipe was obstructed and a mask was placed over his face. Well, that struck me as uh, quite significant, because if we look at these three dead prisoners and look at how they died, each of them died with cloth stuffed into their mouth and down their windpipes. Uh, and there is pretty strong evidence that they died of uh, suffocation and it's probably tied to that cloth, not the supposed hanging yeah. uh, that occurred. So, uh, so there appears to they, so these four people appear to have received the same treatment. One of them survived; three died. And it, it also struck me as possible, and I want to be clear that I'm speculating here based on the uh, great detail in your article, that there could have been attempted waterboarding. Uh, Amr doesn't report that, but uh, perhaps of the three who died. Well, that's right. I mean, when we, we look through all available documentation surrounding prisoners at Guantanamo and in other facilities uh, where death was linked to uh, the presence of, uh, of uh, cloth in the mouth or techniques where the use of cloth in the mouth uh, was a part of an approved technique, uh, and other than this restraint technique that Shakar Amr describes, the other alternative is waterboarding, uh, because application of a cloth and dousing it with water are a part of the waterboarding technique. That's right. Now, uh, I'm sure that you've uh, thought about this in, in some detail, Scott, but I find it very far-fetched that an individual, even a dedicated jihadist who wants to uh, become a martyr, would attempt to commit suicide by stuffing a rag down their throat. Uh, it's, it's the gag reflex kicks in. It strikes me as something that's very difficult to self-administer. Uh, the idea of using some sort of a, of a, a crafted noose uh, to hang oneself is more probable and credible uh, because it's something that you can engineer and then uh, initiate and it kind of takes over. But uh, putting a rag down your throat and trying to suffocate yourself, uh, that just seems uh, nearly impossible. Well, I think that's exactly the dilemma that uh, the camp leadership faced uh, on that morning of June 10th. Uh, because, of course, uh, Colonel Bumgardner, who was a camp commander, uh, assembled all the guards in Camp America Theater, and he told them, 7 o'clock in the morning, we, you all know that these prisoners died as a result of choking on cloth. And then he paused and said, and the news is going to report a different story. The news is going to report that they hung themselves in their cells. Uh, 
and in fact, that is exactly, within a matter of only a few minutes, exactly what was being reported on CNN. Uh, so why did they go with a different story from what had been circulated all around the, bed, uh, the base uh, the night of uh, the death? And I think the answer is exactly what you're pointing at. Uh, there was no credible way to claim uh, that these people committed suicide by stuffing rags down their throat because of involuntary reflex and other things. Uh, it's just not possible to commit suicide that way. That would point pretty clearly to a homicide. Uh, so they had to quickly develop a different, more plausible scenario. And then Bumgarner's boss, Admiral Harris, uh, delivered a statement to reporters, and you quoted it here, let me read it. An alert professional guard noticed something out of the ordinary in the cell of one of the detainees. The guard's response was swift and professional to secure the area and check on the status of the detainee. When it was apparent that the detainee had hung himself, the guard force and medical teams reacted quickly to attempt to save the detainee's life. The detainee was unresponsive and not breathing. The guard force began to check on the health and welfare of other detainees. Two detainees in their cells had also hung themselves. Now, Scott, in this detailed article, you offer us quite a bit of information that uh, there are sharp limits on how much uh, sheeting and bedding material that any inmate can possess at one time. And the guards are instructed to check the cells, is it every 10 minutes? Exactly right. Every 10 minutes, they are to verify uh, that the prisoner is there by observing movement and or flesh. And so that doesn't uh, jibe with the alert professional guard <laughs> duty that Admiral Harris referred to. Several and then, people pointed out those lines to me as extremely significant. So note, uh, under the official story of how they died, uh, these people have been suspended in their cells for two hours before they were first found. Okay, that means that 12 or 13 times someone was to have observed them. Uh, so alert professional guard who missed observing them 13 times over a period of more than two hours? Explain this. Now, uh, now Scott, shopping mall guards are equipped now with little electronic devices where they have to uh, check in at each door that they uh, inspect, at, at each store that they look at, uh, and it, it then creates a real-time record that can be looked at after the fact to make sure that that guard did his duty and inspected each particular spot. Uh, do you have any information that uh, they use a system like this at Guantanamo? Well, they had uh, something better than that. They had whole cameras that recorded everything, that would have recorded the pacing of the guards back and forth continuously uh, through the evening. They had guard logs in which uh, every event uh, in the evening is to have been recorded. Uh, and uh, this is one of the mysterious things, is that uh, there's no discussion of what these hallway monitors describe in the NCIS report, and there is notation that the logbook seems to have had the page reflecting that evening ripped out of it. Very interesting. Now, um, Admiral Harris apparently couldn't resist gilding the lily because this is the remark that uh, initially uh, just triggered a, a response in me that, that raised the, uh, the red flags. Quote, they have no regard for human life, neither, neither ours nor their own. A Pentagon pre press release soon after described the dead men who'd been accused of no crime as al-Qaeda or Taliban operatives. 
And then Lieutenant Commander Jeffrey Gordon, the Pentagon's chief press officer, went even further. These guys were fanatics like the Nazis, Hitlerites, or the Ku Klux Klan, the people they tried at Nuremberg. And then this was described as an act of asymmetrical warfare, as if these detainees held on an unlimited basis without charge were in some sort of coordination with al-Qaeda HQ and decided that uh, the hunger strike part wasn't working, and so the only thing left is to kill ourselves in an effort to embarrass the American captors. This is frankly bizarre. It's completely bizarre. But, you know, let's start with the recognition that at the time these statements are being made, military intelligence has concluded that these people are not in any way involved with the Taliban or al-Qaeda, that having arrested them and brought them to Guantanamo was a big mistake and that they should be released. So the statements that are being made, the people who are making these statements know that these claims are false. Why are they saying these things? And the answer lies in uh, what a, uh, a cards professional would call misdirection. That is, distracting your attention over to this other issue so as to avoid having people focus on the core allegation that these cases are suicides. And in fact, it works just perfectly because the habeas lawyers, the human rights organizations, the newspapers are instantly all in a chatter about this talk of asymmetrical warfare uh, and these attempts to blacken the reputation of these dead prisoners. And nobody asks a single question about whether this really is a suicide. Scott, it's just amazing. Now, in addition, you have a reportage, an interview with uh, the father of one of these individuals who was killed, uh, Talal al-Zarani. And he, as you report, is a brigadier, or maybe he's retired now, a brigadier general in the Saudi Arabian police force. And his reaction to this is quite remarkable. Please tell our listeners. Well, I have to say, of all the people I interviewed for this, and there were more than 40... By far the most impressive person was General Al-Zarani, um, and uh, he was, uh, I, I mean, I have to say, an extremely impressive uh, police professional, criminal investigator. And in fact, he told me, uh, I decided I was going to deal with this matter not as a grieving father, but as a professional policeman. And he did. When I discussed this with him, he marshaled the facts, the evidence, the documents perfectly. He was on top of every single matter. He went and received his son's, his son's body and meticulously documented its condition and made detailed notes about everything. Uh, he was an absolute font of information throughout the case and was in a strong position to challenge claims that were made by uh, the NCIS investigators and the military and show where they were simply off the track. Just amazing. And so with this uh, body of information, and you detail the uh, autopsies that were conducted by military pathologists, and one of the critical elements here is that the you know, most important piece of evidence from these cadavers would have been their necks, uh, because the report was that they had hanged themselves, and their necks also would have included the uh, uh, alleged uh, cloths that were lodged in their, their windpipes. And so what, what do the military autopsies tell us, and what's missing, Scott? 
Well, I have to say, uh, uh, before Sergeant Hickman had come forward to me, I had been talking with pathologists and very famous medical examiners here, and I had shown them the uh, official autopsy records, and they all went through it and were shaking their heads saying, something is really wrong here. Uh, you know, this is just not right. Uh, there's something seriously amiss. And they suggested that I probe. They said they just couldn't believe some of these, some of the statements made in the documents. Well, the official government autopsy was conducted by an anonymous medical examiner assisted by anonymous pathologists. So we have no idea who did it, and they're quite, uh, they're quite adamant about being anonymous. Uh, they're heavily redacted, so we don't know all their conclusions, but they do very quickly say uh, that, they, uh, that it was suicide by hanging, so uh, exactly, and they rest this on the NCIS investigators. Uh, but then at the end of their autopsy, uh, they remove the throat, muscles, and organs, as well as the internal organs uh, of the bodies. Uh, and when the bodies are turned over to the families, the families had arranged for uh, what we call secondary autopsies to confirm the original results, uh, one by a very famous medical examiner in Switzerland, the other by a medical examiner in Saudi Arabia, uh, and those pathologists looked at the bodies and instantly noted, well, the organs and all the throats had been removed. Uh, and they contacted the U.S. authorities and said, you have to give us all the bodies so we can conduct an autopsy. Moreover, in a case like this one where it's claimed to be hanging, there's you know, hardly even any point in an autopsy without being able to examine the throat. Uh, and to which the U.S. refused to respond. And the U.S. Uh, Armed Forces Institute of Pathology refused to respond. Uh, and I guess medical, very prominent medical examiner I interviewed about this said uh, that it was unheard of for armed forces pathologists to refuse cooperation with the secondary autopsy. And he told me this would only happen if they've been ordered not to cooperate. And uh, you earlier described General R. Zarani uh, examining carefully his son's uh, dead body. And you have some quotes here. He says, there was a major blow to the head on the right side. There was evidence of torture on the upper torso and on the palms of his hand. There were needle marks on his right arm and his left arm. And you said that none of those details are included in the American autopsy report. That's correct. Not only are they not in the American autopsy report, a medical corps woman who was at the detention medical center that evening who saw the bodies also described these phenomena. And so how does this get airbrushed out of the official autopsy report? So we have both an American medical professional and we have General Alzarani both describing these phenomena, and in the autopsy report, nothing. Now, Scott, there is more in your article. I encourage people to read it, but I think our listeners are probably pretty persuaded here that there is the basis for a, a, an investigation. And the Justice Department uh, has appeared to have gone through the motions and closed this case already. Well, the most amazing thing is that uh, after, right after Barack Obama is sworn in, they receive allegations. They assign it uh, to a lawyer to conduct the investigation who is involved in the preparation of the Justice Department's torture memoranda. Uh, so her name is uh, Teresa McHenry. Uh, so you can imagine that Ms. McHenry has a very strong interest in closing this matter as firmly and quickly as she can, and that's exactly what happens. And so this then becomes uh, a more contorted case of cover-up and obstruction of justice. 
That's certainly the way I view it. And in terms of legal liabilities here, I, I quote the uh, Judge Advocate General of the Navy, uh, a former Judge Advocate General of the Navy, Admiral John Hudson at the end, uh, who I described these facts to, and he told me uh, that, uh, you know, uh, false official statements are bad enough and cover-ups are bad enough, but in the case involving deaths and detention during wartime, when there's an attempt to cover-up, then officials high up the chain of command who are involved in this cover-up assume the underlying criminal liability. Now, in this case, we're talking about three homicides. That means that people all the way up the chain of command who knew of and condoned this uh, cover-up are potentially liable for the homicides themselves. And we're talking about crimes that may be punishable by death. And Scott, we know that uh, after some pressure from those of us who believe in accountability, that uh, Attorney General Eric Holder made a kind of half measure uh, in the spring of last year where he said, well, uh, I'm not willing to investigate everybody who was involved in the torture practices of the Bush administration, but I will uh, investigate and prosecute those who went beyond the memos that were written by John Yu and Jay Bybee, went beyond the instructions for enhanced interrogations that were approved by Donald Rumsfeld and uh, implemented at Guantanamo and elsewhere. This seems to be screaming. Uh, for that kind of attention. This seems to fit the description, plus some, uh, that Eric Holder offered in what I was quite frankly disappointed in, a limited hangout road uh, for uh, investigating and potentially prosecuting wrongdoing in the torture arena during the Bush administration years. Uh, Tell me what you expect to come with the special counsel who was appointed uh, by Eric Holder to pursue these cases that went beyond the beyond, uh, and if you expect anything to come of it. Well, let's just start with the three deaths uh, at uh, Guantanamo from 2006. Uh, and let's assume the deaths occurred at Camp No in the hands of the intelligence community. The intelligence community is applying uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, which have been explicitly blessed and approved by the Department of Justice. Uh, so uh, if their deaths followed from the use of these techniques, This is a huge problem and embarrassment for the Justice Department. It said, okay, they use these techniques, the prisoners died. Uh, And the the intelligence agents who who were involved are going to say, well, we were cleared by the Justice Department. So there seems to be a very strong attitude of, we don't want to go there. We don't need that embarrassment. Let's just sweep it all under the carpet. Uh, That seems to be what happened. Now let's look at the case involving... Uh, the CIA, the CIA Inspector General's report, uh, which focuses on roughly 10 cases, some of them also probably involving death, uh, in, in which it's alleged that CIA agents went beyond the scope of uh, these memoranda. Uh, people close to Vice President Cheney have been throwing a fit over the fact that this is even being subjected to a preliminary investigation. Uh, They basically believe that there was a license to kill and a license to abuse, and there shouldn't be any second-guessing or questioning of this, and it's unpatriotic to do so. John Durham has been running an investigation, and my sources suggest that he's proceeding very cautiously and very carefully. 
but he's only proceeding with a preliminary investigation. It's not a criminal inquiry. He's only supposed to report back to the attorney general as to whether a real criminal investigation and ultimately prosecution might be warranted, and we're not even there yet. Uh, so it's at a very preliminary stage, and it's a very limited investigation, uh, and we don't see any results from that yet. And this John Durham has also been tasked to investigate the destruction of videotapes that were made by the CIA of uh, actual waterboarding, I believe, of Abu Zubaydah and other uh, uh, detainees. And that is a uh, special prosecutor investigation that has gone uh, formally uh, to the second stage, and that has been going on for some time. I do have information that he has called people uh, before a grand jury in connection with this, all of which suggests that his probe is, in fact, moving towards charges being brought at some point. Well, Scott, this is a very powerful story, a very significant story. And uh, what's also troubling is that, uh, aside from Keith Olbermann's uh, fairly quick coverage of this when you released the article, I'm not aware of any significant coverage in the American media. Uh, We've had a couple of editorials run in some newspapers saying a special prosecutor should be appointed. Uh, There was an article in the Associated Press that got picked up a few places. But basically, the major mainstream media has decided that they will not touch this story in any way. That's in the United States. Uh, On the other hand, outside of the United States, uh, this has been a huge, major story, uh, certainly all over Europe and in Japan uh, uh, and in the Middle East, of course. It's gotten huge coverage in play. But the United States has been essentially blacked out. Well, Scott, you've done great work here, and I thank you, and uh, I hope that it will produce uh, the kinds of investigations and accountability that you and I think are most appropriate here. I want to encourage people to pick up the March edition of Harper's Magazine. This is the cover story of the forthcoming issue. Scott Horton, thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you, Peter. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time for you to try some great organic wines, the earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Just click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer, or go to the Organic Wine Company's website and check out their Valentine's Day special. That's at ecowine.com. Still to come on this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show, my comments on the president's first State of the Union message. But first, we're joined by Ziad Abbas. He's with the Middle East Children's Alliance, and we'll talk about that group here in a moment. And he is a Palestinian. And in recent weeks, uh, we've had much discussion of these issues related to Israel and Palestine, the Goldstone Commission report, the continued expansion of Israeli settlements on the West Bank, and uh, the deadlock that George Mitchell finds himself in as the special envoy President Obama appointed to try to restart peace talks in the Middle East. Ziad Abbas, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me in your program. Well, I'm pleased to talk with you, and I had a chance to hear you speak at a recent event here in the Bay Area. And I wanted to first get your description of the Middle East Children's Alliance and the work you do, and then I want to ask you about some of the issues that uh, are still in great conflict today. 
Tell us about MECA. Your website is MECA, Mecca for Peace dot org. Sure. Actually, Middle Eastern Alliance was established in 1988, May 1988, by uh, my colleague Barbara Lubin and Howard Levine. Mm-hmm. And they focused on that period in the beginning that on children in the Middle East. They were working um, try to support children living in a hard situation, especially in the Middle East, like especially Palestine, uh, Lebanon, um, Iraq, in this area. And they focused at the beginning on the uh, AIDS, sending AIDS to that uh, area, and try to just offer medicine and some stuff for, like, women, children uh, in general. After that, they developed their work where they start focusing on projects. And Middle East since 20 years right now, working with different grassroots organizations in uh, Palestine, especially Gaza Strip and West Bank, and some groups in uh, 1948 inside Israel. At the same time, they focused on, after the war, the Gulf War, the first one, on Iraq. They uh, over like $17 million shipments of AIDS to Iraq, Palestine, and especially uh, during the war and during the sanction on Iraq. Mm-hmm. And after that, actually, they focused a little bit on Lebanon during the war in Lebanon in the 90s and in 2006. Okay. So I can say uh, Middle Eastern Alliance, they are working in different areas, AIDS, uh, supporting children, women projects on the ground. Mm-hmm. And right now we focus, actually, one of the main focus for us in Gaza Strip, it's the water project, where we try to support children and help them to get a clean a class of water, according to the children demands in Gaza Strip. And there is a, you know, many people are aware of the larger issues of the Israeli assault on Gaza, the conditions that people live under there. But I'd like to focus on the innocents, the women and children. And can you give us just a quick sketch of the population, particularly in Gaza? Because as I understand it, almost half of that population is under the age of 18. Yeah, absolutely. The Palestinian community, almost 54% of the Palestinian community in general, they are under 18 years old. Uh And in Gaza Strip, actually approach until 56%. Okay. So the people that are living in Gaza Strip under age uh, 18. For mm-hmm. this reason, for example, as a result for the last attack, over like 1,400 people they were killed. Right. Uh, we have like uh, over 300 children they were killed. And as an innocent people, they were killed in this war. And, and this is one of the critical issues because that's not a secret to the Israelis. And they knew that by using the uh, uh, modern warfare techniques of uh, airstrikes and helicopter gunships and the incursion of troops, uh, the use of white phosphorus, uh, and just the general way, as we're reading in portions of the Goldstone Commission report that the Israelis operated, uh, that women and children would necessarily uh, be caught in the crossfire, be caught up in the violence, and uh, this is something that I find unconscionable because uh, this kind of, of uh, punishment of everyone there uh, for what Israel uh, points out are the actions of a few, the firing of rockets and some of the other provocations that occur, 
uh, by the people who are locked down and, frankly, from my point of view, have no other way of responding. Uh, this is a, a, a violation of international treaties where innocents are caught and known to be there, yet Israel uh, you know, continued with its military assault nonetheless. Absolutely. When we speak about Gaza Strip, like, it's a very, very tiny area. It's one of the most populated areas in the world. When you speak about one million and a half Palestinians living in a very small area, where you will uh, shoot their bombs or the air, their, uh, their uh, air forces, it will abroach some people. And here, where the Israelis, they justify this kind of attack. Ah, we are attacking, like... Uh, the Palestinian fighters, but there are innocent people around because it's used like, according to the Israeli story, that they used, uh, they are living among the community. And Israel, I don't think so. They are caring a lot about the international law since 1948 until now. They don't care about the integration of the human rights. They don't care about um, the United Nations resolutions, etc. So they find their own excuses. And if we want to take it like in, in the, 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 the long history attacking the Palestinian general was back in Gaza Strip, you will find that all the time they try to create their own stories or their own excuses why they, we have high uh, numbers of innocent people or civilians. They were targeted and killed and tortured, or etc. In Gaza Strip, in the last attack, it was very clear that the people, like, when they distribute their statements, uh, official statements from helicopters, papers like throw it in all over Gaza and ask the people we are going to targeting your areas and this is actually documented <clears throat> and they ask the people to move from their area but they are living in a small area where they will go and many of the Palestinians actually they decided okay we will leave our houses they went to mosques they went to the uh, schools they went to United Nations headquarters and despite the fact that the people they left some people they left their houses and they approached United, for example, United Schools, United Nations Schools, or United Nations headquarters. We saw that how the Israelis they targeted, and I can say hundreds of people they were killed when they were hidden in schools and in the United Nations headquarters. So the idea for the Israelis, any Palestinian is wanted, any Palestinian will be killed, it will be okay. Children, youth, women, etc. Because this is the way the meaning of war for the, the Israeli occupation. And in this case, they don't care about uh, the, the, the international law. According to the Goldstone report, Israel, of course, they were against this report. And today, actually, they want to reply to this report because, according to the Israelis, they did their own investigation. And all the time, they will say, yeah, there were some mistakes. Like what happened in Lebanon in 2006, yeah, there were some mistakes. And they find it like this in war, many innocent people killed. But in reality, no, Israel um, targeting the civilian people. And if we go back to the testimony from the Israeli soldiers, they clarify this in very clear ways. They were very clear military orders to the Israeli soldiers that to target anyone moving in Gaza Strip, even the animals, some of the animals, they were killed in Gaza Strip. And this is actually the content of incubation. Our, the content of actions of the oppressors in general, they don't care that much about the civilian people and no. because they believe that this is okay, but this is as a, as a result of any war that some innocent people will be killed. Now, Ziad, in this assault that occurred uh, late last December and a couple of weeks into January as the American government was in transition, there was a almost total silence 
as Israel continued to pound Gaza. And in particular, they targeted the water purification plant and uh, food, food supplies. And that is a violation of uh, the humanitarian codes of the Geneva Conventions. And what is the status of the water supply in Gaza today? Actually, in Gaza, there is a, another face of the disaster in Gaza Strip, which is the, the, the water uh, issue in Gaza. Uh, actually, before the attack, which Gaza water is polluted, the aquifer of, uh, in Gaza Strip is already polluted for different reasons. First, because after the Israeli settlers withdrew from Gaza in 2005, the Israeli settlers, before they left and they, before they uh, damaged and destroyed the settlements, they connected the sewage system to the aquifer, which has polluted the, the, the water. Second, part of the activities they had in that area, especially in the settlements near the sea, that they were digging down where the water, the, the sea water actually approached the aquifer and polluted again the aquifer. And the, the last study coming from Gaza Strip actually came, even part of it was mentioned in the CNN report, that over 95% of Gaza water is polluted. And, it, and when you speak about that, it's like um, affecting everyone living in Gaza Strip. Additional to that, when Israel, for example, during the siege and the sanction until now, which now they face this problem, when they stop like uh, feeding Gaza Strip with the fuel for the electricity uh, generators, uh, of course it will affect the uh, uh, water treatment systems and the purification water treatment system. And before they bomb it, actually, it was affected them because no electricity. To, so the systems, it will not work. It will not clean the water. On the other uh, uh, hand, that the sewage system itself, where they have it like nearby Beit Hanun, and no fuel, and it was targeted and bombed, where they try uh, the, the systems treating the sewage system. So the, the sewage system will not approach the aquifer in, in, in Gaza Strip. So it was like different elements played to, to pollute the water in the, in the aquifer. Additional to that, that the water uh, purification system, the huge one, it was targeted more than two times and destroyed totally. So it skipped the water polluted uh, in Gaza Strip. Additional to that, if you think about it, like especially about the new generation, and according to the studies that most of the disease coming in Gaza Strip right now and among the new generation, it is related to the water that the pollution in the water affected them a lot. And, for example, the cancer issue among children, it's very high right now. And this is before and now after the, the last attack in 2008-2009, it's the cancer raised very high. New children born, they are handicapped. They are not normal children because of the water and some weapons that was used uh, during the war. And absolutely, this is a real and a clear violation for the children's rights, for people's rights, for the uh, international law, for the declaration of the human rights. And I don't think so. The international community pay enough attention for this issue. And so, Ziad, um, there have been pledges of international aid, and it troubles me that Israel... Uh, rained down all of this destruction on Gaza in a very brief period of time. Uh, they used U.S.-supplied weapons, uh, and we continue to pay Israel $3 billion a year in a, a free and clear grant. 
that is often used against the wishes of many Americans like me. In, in, in any event, uh, there have been pledges from the U.S. and other members of the international committee, uh, community yeah. to help rebuild Gaza. And at the event where you spoke earlier this week, I believe you pegged that amount at almost $4.5 billion. What is the status of efforts to rebuild from the destruction that occurred just one year ago? Absolutely. If we return back after the, the, the uh, recent attack on Gaza Strip, uh, which I believe the attack is still continuous, but in different ways. But I mean about the huge military attack in the end of uh, 2008 and 2009, beginning of 2009, there were a huge conference, actually. It was $4.5 billion. The conference was held in Egypt to try to rebuild Gaza, which until now nothing built. Gaza Strip, and they don't allow even the material to be used to rebuild Gaza Strip. They are not allowed that. Israel is not allowing, for the example, the Asmant. They are not allowed to enter uh, Gaza Strip. And this all, like in media, they are going to uh, rebuild Gaza after the war, does not make any sense because everything, and we have tens of people, they are living, uh, they are homeless, they lost their homes. Over 50,000 people right now, they are living in tents in Gaza Strip. I believe that, that Israel will not Israel will not be ready to attack Gaza Strip without, without green light. First of all, from uh, the United States of America uh, government. At the same time, they will not do this kind of attacks on Palestinian or in Lebanon, for example, and continue their policy, uh, the collective punishment policy against the Palestinian people, without the. Uh, the donation and the support coming from the American community. I believe each American is responsible in a way or another right now, not just because what's happened in Gaza Strip, because this kind of policy is going on, not only now, uh, even in the past, since a long time, Israel gets this kind of funds and support from the United States of America, and now they still continue to do that. And even the sanction now, or the expanding of settlements, or the building the wall, or their military actions on the ground in West Bank and Gaza Strip, it's most of this funds coming from the United States of America. And the people, they need to take their own stand. Because we believe to achieve the peace and justice in the Middle East, American people need to take a stand toward that, because in a way or another, they are responsible about what's going on in the Middle East. And Ziad, the one exception to the um, lack of rebuilding inside Gaza is right at the Rafah border where Israel is building a huge barrier, one that will be both above ground and go deeply underground in an effort to prevent tunneling, which has been one of the only ways that uh, Palestinians have been able to bring in uh, food and water and fuel, and uh, you remarked animals come in through the, uh, the these tunnels. And uh, that is being done with the help of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Absolutely. If we think about, like, going back to the majors, like the main majors that Israel took last 10 years, this uh, uh, got a lot of support from the United States of America. First, the wall, the huge wall, like 540 miles long, 8 meters high, cut West Bank and part of Jerusalem, and uh, tried to build new borders on the ground, both new facts on the ground by building the wall in West Bank. Additional to that, all Gaza Strip, it's under, it's surrounded actually by fence and electronic fence from the Israeli side. And recently, where the Egyptian and the Egyptian borders in Rafah actually, the, the iron 
uh, wall built and supported. The whole support came from the United States of America, where they do, do it in the ground, very deep, try and to stop, uh, stop uh, prevent the Palestinians to uh, uh, digging more tunnels to get their own needs from uh, Egyptian side. And this funded by United States of America. Here we see it's a huge jail, and it reminds me actually the, the same policy that Israel is dead. I, I remember in, in the beginning of the first Intifada when Israel they started building a, a cage, cage in the in the jail. I spent part of my life in that cage. It's in the Negev desert when they arrested thousands of Palestinian political prisoners and kept them in. Uh, uh, sections and tents surrounded by fences and electronic fences in, in um, Nakav Desert. And after that, they built the cage, huge walls, and covered by uh, uh, net. You can't see only the sky. And it's a cage, like you keep the animals in a certain kind of cage. But even the animals, they keep some windows where the fresh air can enter. Yeah. And now I can say Gaza Strip, it's in a cage, but in a different way. And, and Ziad, why were you held? Uh, this is the so-called administrative detention? Yes, I was in jail, like you, what you are doing. I am a journalist, actually. My major is a journalist, and I used to be to write about what's going on, and I used to work with international uh, uh, media agencies and with some human rights organizations. So I was in jail, like many tens or hundreds of Palestinian journalists and the human rights activists, they were, we were in jail. And some of them, until now, they are st- still in jail. So, uh, actually, this is like, I can say it, it's a policy. There, they use it in a small level, and now they use it in a huge level, where Israel, they control the air, they control the borders with Gaza Strip, and now they are digging down to control underground. And this is when you think about it, okay, they, even they will open a channel near this iron wall to fill it with water. Gaza seeking water, struggling to get water, but now they will use the water as a punishment for the people to, to make it difficult for them in the future to digging any tunnel toward the Egyptian side. It's, it's a policy, and this policy is not only Israel doing that. There are major forces uh, in the world responsible about that. I can say the international community responsible because Gaza, one million and a half, they are jailed, tortured, uh, living behind uh, barriers, fences, sanctions, and now even this this kind of uh, uh, tunnels used in Gaza Strip. And I heard from many friends in Gaza Strip that the tunnels used to smuggle cows, goats, milk, food, fuel, medicine, everything they need to survive. It's, we can't punish like people, one million and a half people, and ask them, hey, Wait, we will control everything will come to you, the water, the food, everything. People, they struggle. They want to survive. And Ziad, as uh, the president spoke in his State of the Union message, he did highlight the humanitarian crisis in Haiti. Uh, I didn't hear any reference to the plight of the Palestinian people. You mentioned at the event where I met you that um, there were a group of Palestinian children who raised $5,000 and sent it to relief agencies to help the people of Haiti, and, and I'm touched by that. But describe the, uh, the way the United States has treated the Palestinian people, particularly in the aftermath of this brutal assault by Israel, where 1,400 Palestinians were killed, and 14 is, 13 or 14 Israelis, mostly soldiers, lost their lives. 
It's a huge disproportionality. Absolutely. What happened in Haiti, it's a huge disaster, and it's a natural disaster. And we, Palestinians, we know the meaning of to be a homeless or to lose your home or to not to have the opportunity to get the medicine, to survive. Because if it's in Haiti, it's a natural uh, disaster. In Palestine, in general, it's a continuous disaster, but it's a political disaster related to some forces. They control this part of the world. In Gaza Strip, absolutely, the children of Gaza, as I said, over 50,000, they are homeless. They lost their homes during the last attack, and they are living in tents. Schools destroyed, destroyed, even universities destroyed. And the people, they understand the meaning. And here, when the Palestinian people, like we think about it, like in general, it's an international solidarity. We understand the meaning to suffer this kind of needs, basic needs as a human being. So absolutely, there is a natural, natural react among the Palestinian people. Yes, we want to stand with the, what's going on in Haiti. And for this reason, like people in Gaza, they send their donation. And here in, my, in West Bank, like Middle Eastern Alliance, on behalf of the children of the Hesha refugee camp in Bethlehem, they send another $5,000 to support Haiti and for children in, in Haiti. And this reflects how much the people they are standing with each other, supporting with each other, trying to create such kind of uh, real solidarity with each other, even in a small amount of money where they can stand with each other, that we understand your suffering, and our duty is to support with you or share with you this piece of bread or share with you this bottle of uh, milk, etc., with, uh, with Haiti. The other issue, it's like for United States of America, absolutely, until now, the American government didn't, did not recognize the suffering of the Palestinian people or the results of the disasters that the Palestinian people lived since 1960, since 1948 until now. And even the American media avoiding that, and the American media, they are biased, and they have double standards like the American government. They take a stand to support Haiti, but they don't take a stand to support people in Gaza. Even they spoke about supporting the people in Gaza Strip, but until now, nothing arrived to Gaza Strip. I think uh, the United States of America, I, mean, I can say the government and the media, they have double standards for the human rights or human aid. And sometimes they divide between this human being and the other human being according to, the, to their own interests and according to their plans, political plans in the, in the region. Uh, people, they are actually in Palestine, when, and even for me as a Palestinian refugee, absolutely I get angry from that because I am a human being too. Yeah. I deserve to, to, to be treated equally like everyone. It's not the idea we jealous from the people in Haiti. No, we are very happy that there are certain people in this world that they took a stand to support the people in Haiti. But at the same time, what's about our children? Our children, they deserve to be treated equal like other children living in any disaster or in war or any, uh, any actions like this. And this is where the people, they need to take a stance and create their own alternative way to be in solidarity with other people. And this is why we call the American people right now you need to take their, your own stand. You, take, you need to take your stand to support uh, people that are affected in direct way by your, uh, f uh, your government foreign policy in the Middle East. And right now, for example, just if you excuse me to mention that, we are doing this purification system, water system in, in Gaza Strip, to try to support the school with a small 
beautification systems where each school they can have their own beautification system to have a, a clean glass of water. Uh, two years ago, when we asked the children in Gaza and Lebrej uh, refugee camp, what you need from us as a Middle East Children Alliance? And after their workshop, they came out with, they asked us, can we have just a clean glass of water when we are in school? And it was shocked. We were shocked, actually, that children just, they are asking about simple things to have a clean glass of water. Yeah. Because they can't trust the water in the school to drink the water. And even the water at home, they need to boil the water. And there is no electricity, they can't boil the water. It's complicated. Yeah. So we decided to, to support. Until now, we succeed to have seven systems in schools in Gaza, and we will move. This is right now one of the main projects for us, uh, for, uh, for us in Gaza Strip, where we try to offer the children in Gaza Strip a clean glass of water. Siad, it's a real pleasure to meet you. I appreciate your advocacy for your people, and uh, I thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today. I want to direct people to the website of the Middle East Children's Alliance. It's meca4peace.org. Thank you very much, Ziad Abbas. Thank you. Good to talk with you. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show. Barack Obama gave his first State of the Union address. There are a couple of good things in there, but he forgot a lot. Oh, it just doesn't slip my mind. It just doesn't slip my mind. He could have given us some specifics on health care reform and what kind of a bill he's actually looking for, but... It just doesn't slip my mind. I left my body somewhere down the line. And he talked in broad terms, populist terms, about how he hated the bank bailouts. And he could have given us details on what kind of financial institution reform he wanted. Kind of left it as simple. Well, the House bill's pretty good. The Senate ought to pass it. And as I watched the president deliver his State of the Union message, I thought to myself, he really is a great speaker. And he delivered a pretty good Barack Obama speech. But the content was really quite ordinary. It was what you would expect from a typical president of the United States kind of highlighting things that uh, make him look good and playing down or just ignoring the real contentious issues that really, really matter. And the key element here is that Barack Obama is a conservadem, and his true conservatism is coming out. Now, it appears this is driven by the Massachusetts election and by polling that the president has seen that shows that uh, Americans have basically rejected his work in the first year. The health care reform, as badly bungled as it is, is stalled now. And he's trying to come up with a face-saving way of salvaging that. And here was his opportunity just to tick off five things that he thought were essential to a bill. He said, well, he wants to preserve the right of Americans who have insurance to keep their doctor and their plan. Well, big deal. 
He also broadly said that the plan before us would bring more competition to health care insurance and health care delivery. And that is flatly untrue. Even the measly public option would have injected a little bit of competition. But if you look at some combination of the Senate and House plans as they stand today, I don't think they'll do diddly to add competition. Now, to the president's credit, he sounded the theme that he wants to work with Congress to allow gays to serve openly in the military. That's a good step. He also articulated a plan that I fully support to nearly double, as he puts it, the child care tax credit. That's a refundable tax credit for low and moderate income Americans that could be very helpful for families who are squeezed right now as wages are flat to stagnant to declining. Jobs are hard to find. And a lot of moms have a difficult choice to make. To spend 60-80% of the money I earn at McDonald's for child care? So, that's a good one. But the president embraced a gimmick that has John McCain's signature on it. And also, for people who know history, recalls the bungling of Herbert Hoover that prolonged the Great Depression in the 1930s. The president, uh, having a plan rejected by the Senate to create a bipartisan commission to reduce the deficit, said, well, screw you, I'll use an executive order and appoint, appoint one of my own. And this is a meaningless effort. They will trim a little bit of fat here and a little bit of fat there and then cut a couple of key programs that matter to Americans who can least afford cutbacks today. And this deficit reduction effort excludes the biggest source of our deficits today, which is the unlimited spending on wars and the Department of Defense. And in embracing this, I'm sure it'll poll well with many Americans like the Evan Bayh types, the Mary Landro types. But it really won't do anything meaningful. The proposed cuts wouldn't cut in, uh, kick in for a year or two. And again, the most uh, egregious source of our current deficits will not be addressed. Now, there were a couple of moments. The president faced the members of the Supreme Court who were there in the congressional session and told him he didn't like the decision last week that allows corporations to spend unlimited amounts on candidate elections. And there was an interesting reaction from Justice Alito, the uh, corporatist who was appointed to the court by George W. Bush and confirmed by spineless Democrats. Oh, he didn't mention that part, did he? <laughs> but Alito squirmed and mouthed the words... Uh, no way or not true. I think he said not true. As Obama criticized the Supreme Court decision. And that was an interesting moment. It doesn't get us anywhere. It's not going to change anything. Because this president doesn't have the votes 
to pass a constitutional amendment. There's a very high barrier for that, two-thirds of both houses. Or meaningful legislation that would limit, restrict, or require more transparency of corporate campaign contributions. And the other thing that was interesting was the way the president described what he inherited without saying who he inherited it from. (laughs) And as I saw the camera cut away to John McCain, after Obama had announced his deficit commission and as he was explaining the mess that he found on his desk when he arrived in the Oval Office, McCain was seen, of course there was no sound, but I read his lips. He said, blame it on Bush. And I wish he had. Obama can't find it in his vocabulary to identify the clear source of the economic travesty that he inherited. He acts as if it was just something that happened. You know, like a tornado or a hurricane or an earthquake. And he continues to support Timothy Geithner. I don't believe he mentioned his call for this minuscule tax on banks, which he argues will cause them to pay for the next bailout, while ignoring that what we need to do is re-regulate our financial institutions to make sure that they don't need the kind of massive bailout the $14 trillion, not the $700 billion in the TARP fund. Obama couldn't be honest about that. And so here we have a president who is trying to straddle. And this is why I find him now so ordinary. Because he has this kind of phony populism. I hate the bank bailout, he said three or four times. We all hate the bank bailout. And I'm not going to fix the underlying problems. I don't believe there was a word in there about mortgages other than happy talk about people who were able to refinance. I didn't hear him talk about the homeowners who are facing foreclosure and being booted out of their homes. He talked a lot about jobs. I'm not opposed to jobs. But he didn't offer a coherent strategy to address the fundamental problems, the viruses, the toxicity in our economic system today. I don't believe he mentioned Ben Bernanke's name. And I'm pleased that an array of people from Barbara Boxer to Bernie Sanders in the Senate, Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich in the House, have said, wait a minute, we don't need to give Bernanke another term. Yet it appears the majorities will be there in the Senate to reconfirm him. There were, you know, just no details on many of the most critical issues that I really care about. And then the real painful part for me was when Obama talked about energy He said, we want a new generation of safe nuclear power plants in this country. Now, 
compared to his predecessor, at least he didn't say nuclear. (laughs) But it's so painful to hear a Democratic president talk about safe nuclear power, clean coal, and offshore drilling. Yeah, he said, we'll make the tough choices for offshore drilling. Was there a mention of climate change in there? Was there a mention that the amount of oil and gas we can get from offshore tracks is minuscule and that we should be making the push to convert to renewable energy and not even touch that stuff? No. No, this was a collection of happy talk, pandering promises, a shift to the right that is deeply troubling, Because once again, the Democrats misread the electorate. They think when they lose elections, the only answer is to act like Republicans. Sorry, Barack. The answer is to act like a progressive, even if for you, it's only an act. And instead, you're acting like Bill Clinton, 1994. to the right. Come on and take a definite position. Definite position. Now do a total turnabout. Total turnabout. Shake your finger at the media. See how good they'll be to you. Everybody do the Clinton. There was no talk about restoring my Fourth Amendment rights and ending the spying. It slipped his mind to talk about Guantanamo. Keep up with a two-step. Walking rich does Everybody do the Clinton. Come on and slide over to the middle. Over to the middle. Straighten up and step line. Up and step line. Lean it to the left a little. To the left a little. Now lean a lot to the right. Lean a lot to the right. That's my friend Roy Zimmerman back in the day with the four men. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Email me. Happy trails to Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling under